would agree with me this morning that the slave trade in in England and the United States was one of the most reprehensible crimes in all of human history. Slaves were treated like absolute animals. They were beaten, they were abused, they were scoffed at, they were harshly treated by their masters. Uh, many of the slaves died, of course, and as I got thinking about the slave trade, the thought struck my mind, I, I can't think of any worse existence than being a slave. Yet as Jesus continues his exchange with the Pharisees, the mental picture that surfaces in our Lord's mind is none other than the slave. And please don't miss the magnitude of what's happening in this conversation, you remember that Jesus has already confronted the, the grievous uh, hypocrisy of these religious leaders as they prepared to stone the woman caught in the act of adultery. In John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11, uh, Jesus exposed very clearly and vividly the sin of the hypocrisies. He said they were finger pointers. They were wagging their fingers at all the other sinners, and they forgot to look at their own hearts. They were fixated with the sins of other people. They were absolutely filled with pride. And these Pharisees, these religious leaders, were fueled by carnal motivation. Additionally, Jesus confronted their hard hearts. We looked at this as he discussed these things with them in John chapter 8, verses 12 to 21. There, the Pharisees dogmatically repudiated the light. They defiantly repudiated the light. They hated what was good. And Jesus ultimately, at the end of this particular segment in the discussion, he tells them something very, very important. He tells them, you will die in your sin. And then in verses 22 to 29, the section of Scripture that we examined last week, Jesus admonished the religious leaders. He admonished the Pharisees for having, having what we described as seething hearts. They disregard impending judgment. As the judgment of God hangs over their heads, they, they brush it aside. They not only disregard this impending judgment, they are drowning in self-righteousness. They're distracted by worldly pursuits. You see, for the Pharisees, it's all about the horizontal. It looked on the outward sort of things that they were focusing on the vertical, but their focus was not on God. Their focus was on the things of the earth. And ultimately, as we learned last week, they decisively rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. But then last week, we ended with verse 30. And in verse 30 of John chapter 8, there is a shift that appears to take place. The Apostle John reports, many believed in him. And so we have a whole series of conversations taking place where Jesus is, is exposing their sin. Jesus is confronting their hard hearts. He's admonishing them. He says, you will die in your sin. And it appears that something hopeful happens in verse 30. When John the Apostle reports, yet many believed in him. As we begin this morning, I want to ask this question. What did Jesus do with that? What did Jesus do when he learned that these 
self-righteous, self-consumed religious zealots believed in him. I don't know about you, but when I hear that someone believes, it doesn't matter who it is, man, I'm, I'm ready to roll. I, I want to get on the bandwagon. I want to celebrate that. But Jesus, not so quick. He challenges their faith. And for the ones who may have genuinely believed, his challenge, I believe, would have been met with open ears and open hearts. And I found that in the Christian life. When, when you admonish a brother or a sister and they respond with a soft heart, there's nothing more encouraging for that exchange to take place. But when you're met with resistance, when you're met with a stony heart, that's a discouraging endeavor. And so for the ones who were genuinely believing, his challenge would be welcomed. They would welcome any words of admonishment from the lips of Jesus. But for the ones who who were what I like to call sham believers... For the ones who were imposters, for those whose faith was not authentic, those who claimed to believe but really didn't believe, they would receive stern rebuke from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, instead of being thrilled with their spirituality, Jesus actually challenges their so-called spirituality by referring to them as slaves. Imagine the religious leaders who say, Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I have faith. And one of the first things out of the mouth of our Lord is, you are slaves. I can assure you that the title of the message this morning has absolutely nothing to do with Mother's Day. The title of the message is Spiritual Slaves. And the Bible teaches that every person, as you know, is born on a spiritual slave ship. We are, as King David said, conceived in sin. We are, as Paul the Apostle wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, dead in sin. And we know from many passages in in the sacred scripture that we are in bondage to sin. I trust this morning that the passage before us will be not only a challenge to you, but will be deeply encouraging to you. If you are still traveling on that spiritual slave ship and sin has you by the throat, my prayer is that today... That sometime in the course of the day, you would be able to to draw in the fresh air of God's amazing grace for the first time. If you were here today and you were burdened with guilt. If you were here and, and sin has you all tripped up. My prayer is that you would, for the first time, experience the forgiveness of all your sin. Past, present, and future Because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My hope is that you are here today. If you are here today and you are a spiritual slave. That you would leave this place liberated. That you would not have these chains around your wrist. Now Ethan Scheib. Ethan and I had a talk this morning. And I told Ethan that I would be bringing some handcuffs into the pulpit. And Ethan you remember what I said to you. I said that I kind of ran into a problem. I lost the key. 
So if at any time I run into problems, I, I may be calling on Ethan to come, and I don't know what he's going to do, because do you have the key, Ethan? Did I give you the key? I said, we're not quite sure where it's at, but he is going to be my, my helper this morning. I want to ask you today, what is the greatest need of spiritual slaves? That is what we'll look at this morning. I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we will be reading from verses 31 to verse 36. We stand with me out of respect for God's word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham. And have never been ensnared to anyone. How is it that you can say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. We join me in prayer. Our Father, today we come to a very important section of Scripture Describing the state of unconverted people, men and women and boys and girls who have been born into this world uh, under a curse, a curse that was inflicted upon them and us by our father, Adam. But we recognize, Lord, it is not completely his fault because as the word of God teaches, each of us are sinners by nature and by choice. And so, Father, as we confront the reality of spiritual slavery, I pray that the gospel would become abundantly clear to someone for the first time. God, I pray for uh, veterans in the Christian faith, people who have been walking with Jesus for many years, that, uh, that new light would be shed on your word and all that you have delivered us from because of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would uh, both challenge and encourage today as we open your word, as we study it together. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Once again, will you look with me at verse 30? This is to review from last week. The Apostle John reports as he or Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. That is to say, many believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, I want you to see three pillars that we will use to probe the heart of the Pharisees. These pillars will probe the hearts of any person who makes claim to saving faith. Additionally, these pillars will probe the hearts of all of us today as we study God's word together. Before we look at the first pillar, before we examine it together, I want to make a statement that may come as a shock and a surprise to you. Did you know that it is entirely possible, and I have seen this throughout the course of my Christian life, I'm sure some of you have as well, it is entirely possible for a person to be a believing unbeliever. It is, impo- it is possible for a person to be a believing unbeliever. That is to say, it is possible to lay claim to faith, yet continue to seethe in your heart. 
It is entirely possible to give lip service to Jesus Christ, but fail to live for Jesus Christ. Or most sharply put, it is, it is very possible to profess faith, yet you do not possess faith. And this is exactly what's happening in this section of Scripture. The Lord Jesus Christ is confronting those religious leaders who say, Jesus, I believe. Look at the first pillar with me. Pillar number one is what I like to refer to as the test, the test of spirituality. Now, our young people know all about taking tests. They do it all throughout the week. And I I need to say, I missed the young people last week. Imagine the first three rows being totally empty. Because that's what it was. And so it's good to have students back. And Katie, it's good to have you back today as well. We continue to pray for you and thank God for you. The test of spirituality is what is at play here in verses 31 and 32. You see, we live in a generation where spirituality is at a peak. We we live in a time where spirituality is in. Young people put it this way, and they've heard this, spirituality is cool. I mean, it's, you're on the in crowd to be spiritual, and you see that reflected in any bookstore that you will walk into. You walk into a Barnes & Noble, you walk into Village Books in Fairhaven, my favorite place, and you will see that spirituality is celebrated in these bookstores. However, most of what passes for spirituality in our culture is a mixture of monism, Gnosticism, Hinduism, Buddhism, angelology, and the occult. And such an approach to spirituality, I must say, and to be very frank with you, is a road that leads to eternal death. There is a road, the Proverbs say, that, lead, that, that appears to lead to life. It seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. There was a day when these pseudo-approaches to spirituality were fairly easily detected by followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in recent days, it has become, I believe, more difficult to detect the pseudo-spirituality from real God-centered spirituality. One writer by the name of Peter Jones says it this way. He says, neo-paganism infects the church by dressing up as the Christian faith. You see, a person can be a Gnostic, a person can be a Buddhist or a Hindu, and make it look like historic Christianity. And this is the the exchange I have every single time with members of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. Mormons. They look good. They smell good. They talk good. They're always friendly. I enjoy my interaction with my Mormon friends. But I remember as I talked to each one of them, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. That is eternal death. You see, what passes for spirituality in our day, and perhaps this is why it's so very popular, is that spirituality in our age is self-styled, self-imposed, and utterly self-centered. And this brand of spirituality may give lip service to the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is filled with deadly deception. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
Then in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so in verses 31 and 32, Jesus offers what we'll call three tests for spirituality. This is what you might call the litmus test for discipleship. And what we find is this, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are disciples and there are slaves to sin. And today I want to offer a a strong challenge, and that is to ask you, which category do you find yourself in? Because there are only two options. You are a, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ or you are a slave to sin. And so the test of spirituality will help you and it helped these Pharisees discern where they stood with the Holy God. Notice the first test with me. The first test for spirituality is that a disciple abides in the word of Jesus. Notice as Jesus says, he says, if you abide, you see conditionality applied. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. I want to highlight the word abide. It comes from the Greek word meno. Not a minnow, not the fish, but a meno. And meno is the word that means in, in a modern jargon to keep on keeping on. It means to continue. It means to keep moving in an activity or a state. And in this case, it's keep on keeping on with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you may remember, as we studied several months ago, the book of 1 John, that the word abide is a word that is not only close to the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is also close to the heart of the Apostle John. And the notion of abiding with Jesus, the notion of abiding with Jesus is linked to three concrete ideas in the New Testament. The first of the concrete ideas is this, abiding infers obedience. Abiding infers obedience. Listen to what John says, or what John's gospel says in chapter 15. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then in 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, John the Apostle says, Whoever says that he abides in him, that is Jesus, ought to walk in the same way that he also walked. And so abiding leads us to this notion of obedience. And Jesus says once again, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Second, I want you to see that the notion of abiding is also linked to what we might phrase as a love for holiness. If you abide in Jesus, you have a desire to obey Jesus and you have a a deep love for holiness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. John says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. And then three verses later in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, John the Apostle says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, 
For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Now, we need to wrestle with something very, very important at this point. So hold your finger in John 8 and turn towards the end of the New Testament to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. While you're turning there, you will recall in 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 9, John the Apostle draws out this argument that he essentially says, if you abide in sin, you can't possibly be a believer. Here's the problem. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, the same apostle, the apostle John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we ask, how do I reconcile those two things? Well, number one, we remember this. Each of us are sinners by nature and choice. When we come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sin is forgiven, past, present, and future. Yet, we continue to struggle with what Scripture refers to as indwelling sin. And we see that very clearly settled in 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. From time to time, you will run into a person who believes the doctrine of perfectionism. Perfectionism says there comes a point in your Christian life when you no longer struggle with sin. I've talked to those people. And it's rather interesting because I will tell the person that I don't believe them. I don't believe that you've come to the place in your Christian life where you no longer struggle with sin. They, they say rather judgmentally, judgmentally, well, how can you say that? You're casting judgment back on me. And I say, I know that you continue to struggle with sin because you just lied to me. You see, the doctrine of perfectionism is nowhere found in sacred scripture. And so we continue to wrestle with indwelling sin, but then we need to go back to 1 John chapter 3. What is John the Apostle referring to? Well, specifically in 1 John 3, 9, we look at the word abide. And if you want to look at that with me, that would be helpful. The word abide is written in Greek in the present tense. And so here's what the verse means. No one born of God, no one who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit makes a practice of sinning. God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. That doesn't mean you no longer struggle with sin. Rather, what it does mean is if you walk through the Christian life and you commit a sin and you pay no regard to the holiness of God, you pay no regard to running to the cross and asking Jesus to forgive you of your sin, then that is a mark that you, were, you have never been a genuine believer And that's where these Pharisees, for the most part, find themselves. Is they're professing faith, but they don't possess faith. They don't have a desire to obey Jesus. They don't have a a deep and abiding love for holiness. And then finally, we see that the notion of abiding is linked to saving faith. To saving faith. We saw several months ago in John chapter 5, verses 37 and 38. Those verses read, And the Father, Jesus says, who sent me, has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you. Why? For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So you can say 
all you want, that you believe in Jesus. But if you don't believe the one that the Father has sent, if if you don't place saving faith in Jesus, then at the end of the day, you're still an unconverted person. And so the notion of abiding entails obeying Jesus, loving holiness, having a desire to walk with him, and a saving faith that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the second test of spirituality that emerges in these verses. Jesus says that a a disciple knows the truth. He knows the truth. Truth, a quick definition, is that which is in accord with reality. Roger Nicole, who went to be with the Lord just a few years ago, says it this way. The biblical view of truth is like a rope with several intertwined strands. It involves facts, faithfulness, and completeness. And so you see a disciple believes the truth. A disciple embraces the truth. He cherishes the truth and he recognizes Jesus as the as the truth. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Finally, notice with me in these verses that a, a disciple, by definition, has spiritual freedom. Again, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A disciple now of the Lord Jesus Christ has, been, has, has received spiritual freedom. There's several things I want you to see about this. That a disciple is now free from condemnation. He's free from condemnation. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation. That comes from the Greek word judgment. There is no judgment for anyone in Christ Jesus. The disciple who is spiritually free has been delivered from bondage. He's delivered from the slavery of sin. The disciple is freed from spiritual death. John 8.51 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, you will never see death. Moreover, the disciple is freed from the wrath of God. Romans 5.9 says, Therefore, We have been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And then, of course, we recognize that this disciple who has spiritually been set free is free from sin. For Romans 8, 2 says the law of the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of of sin and death. When I say that we are free from sin, I mean now we have been set free from the power of sin. We've been set free from the penalty of sin. And one day, can you believe it? We will be set free from sin's very presence. Here is the implication of this first point. The implication of pillar number one, the the test of spirituality. All three tests are interlocked. All three tests hang together. You cannot have one without the other. That is to say, if you are not abiding in the word, you will not know the truth. And if you do not know the truth, it would follow that you have, been not, you have not yet been set free spiritually. And so notice what's happening. The Pharisees here are not abiding in the word, Jesus says. The Pharisees do not love the truth the Pharisees have not experienced spiritual freedom. 
They are a classic example of someone who believes about Jesus, but they have failed to put their trust in Jesus. That is to say, these religious leaders are believing unbelievers. They profess faith in Jesus, but they do not yet possess saving faith. Leon Morris, very important scholar, said it this way, that this is a most dangerous spiritual state to recognize that truth is in Jesus and to do nothing about it means that in effect, one ranges oneself with the enemies of the Lord. And that's a very important citation for us this morning at Christ Fellowship. As you can, you can come to church, you can come to Veritas, you can be involved in ministry, you can give lip service to Jesus, but if you don't abide with Jesus, if you don't know the truth, if you have not yet been set free spiritually, then a work of grace needs to take place in your heart. Some of you are here today, and you're thinking good thoughts about Jesus some of you are here and you're, you're professing faith. I remember hearing a, a quote from Tim Keller not too long ago where he said that religious people find God useful. Christian people find God beautiful. You see the distinction? Religious people find that God is useful. Christ followers find that God is beautiful. And so as we say last week, as we said last week, that Christ followers not only see Jesus, they savor Jesus. They see the Lord Jesus Christ and they savor the Lord Jesus Christ and they hold him to be the most beautiful person in all of creation. The Pharisees here, I believe, immediately see the implication of this test of spirituality. They know that they fail miserably. And so they do what is typical for human beings. They go, they go into defense mode. They begin to move in a position or a posture where they defend themselves. And the more they defend themselves, the more their false spirituality becomes evident. Move with me now from the test of spirituality to the second pillar. What I've labeled the trademarks of spurious faith. The trademarks of spurious faith. Look with me at verse 33 and watch the Pharisees as they move into this defensive posture. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? I want you to see two trademarks of spurious faith. The first trademark is this is what we might refer to as an appeal to posterity. An appeal to posterity. That is, there is someone in my family, and because of that someone in my family, I am justified before God. Here's what's very interesting. If you look at verse 33, note the word offspring. The word offspring. The word offspring is the Greek word, comes from the Greek word sperma. Are you with me? Sperma. Sperma means seed or descendant or prosperity. And so the Pharisees here infer 
that because of their rich spiritual pedigree, namely that Abraham is their father, that on the basis of their spiritual pedigree, on the basis of their spiritual posterity, they stand in a right relationship with the God of the universe. Young people, that would be like you get a really bad score on your test, or even better yet, you cheat on a test. And you're sent to the principal's office, and there you are ready to to face the music with the principal. And the principal says something like this, young man, young woman, you are in deep weeds. You're in big trouble, and indeed you would be. And instead of taking the penalty for the crime, as it were, you say something like this, Mr. So-and-so, Mrs. So-and-so, do you have any idea who my father is? He will have you fired. And the principal would look him in the eye and say, listen here, Bubba, I don't care who your mama is, and I don't care who your daddy is, you cheated on a test, and you're going to do time, right? Well, that's what's happening here at the Pharisees. They're making their appeal to their posterity. They're making an appeal to Father Abraham. An appeal to posterity is the first trademark here of spurious faith. But there's another trademark of spurious faith that is very serious and is often not recognized even in evangelical circles. The second trademark of spurious faith is an unwillingness, an utter unwillingness to admit spiritual slavery. Notice what they say. We have never been enslaved to anyone. You know the way some evangelicals would look at that in our culture? They put it this way. I have free will. That's exactly what the Pharisees are saying here. One commentator notes, but the man who is constantly missing the mark of God's glory and delights in this is definitely a transgressor of God's law. Such a man here is referred to as a slave of sin. He is a slave for he has become overcome and taken by his master's sin and is unable to deliver himself from this bondage. He is truly chained as a prisoner with the iron band around his wrist. Now, Ethan, you better get ready because I don't have the key. And there we go. It's around his wrist and it's fastened to a chain which is cemented on the wall of a dungeon. He cannot break the chain. On the contrary, every sin he commits draws it tighter and tighter until at last it crushes him completely. Yet the the mantra I hear from so many people is, I have free will. And this is what I picture in my mind when I hear that. I have free will, really. You are free to commit sin, is what Jesus is trying to explain here to the Pharisees. The irony is this. This person refuses to admit or confess that he or she is a spiritual slave. Now, we've seen the first two pillars. We've seen the test of spirituality. We've seen the trademarks of spurious faith. I want to move on and look briefly at the third pillar. It's the pillar that I refer to as the trauma of spiritual truth. I'm going to have an awful time turning the pages in my Bible. 
Look at John chapter 8, verses 34 to 36. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, I say to you, some people, are you with me? Not some people. A few people, what does Jesus say? Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. And then Jesus concludes with these words. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I want you to see with me three traumatic truths, deeply impacting truths that the Pharisees don't seem to get. The first is this. Number one, every person, Jesus says, is a spiritual slave. Every person is a spiritual slave. Both scripture and experience tell us that every unconverted person commits sin as a matter of habit. Therefore, every unconverted person is a slave to sin. The word slave comes from the Greek word doulos. John MacArthur, in his book aptly titled Slave, describes the radical effects of sin in in the life of an unbeliever. He says, sin is a cruel tyrant. It is the most devastating and degenerating power ever to afflict the human race. It corrupts the entire person, infecting the soul, polluting the mind, defiling the conscience, contaminating the the affections, and poisoning the will. It is a life-destroying, soul-condemning cancer that festers and grows in every unredeemed human person like an incurable gangrene. And the Pharisees refuse to see it. Galatians 4 says that in the same way, we also were children. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Second Peter also says that they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And so the first traumatic truth, very simply put, is that every person is born into a, a situation where they are spiritual slaves. Secondly, verse 36 tells us that every person remains in bondage to spiritual slavery until the Son sets them free. Jesus provides the answer here to spiritual slavery. The answer is not found in works. The answer is not found in putting more money in the offering plate. The answer is not found in making a trip, a sacred journey, or a pilgrimage. The answer is found in Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. The answer is the gospel. If you're a spiritual slave this morning, you find yourself on a journey on the spiritual slave ship. Remember, the only answer to your dilemma is the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, I want you to see in verses 37 that every person is loyal to someone. This is the third traumatic truth. Every person is loyal to someone. And Jesus shows here where the loyalties of the Pharisees lie. He tells them, listen, I understand, guys, that your father is Abraham. I understand that your daddy is Abraham, but their actions betray their posterity. 
Their actions truly show where their loyalties lie. And notice what he says. First of all, he says that you seek to kill me. You say you believe in me, but you seek to kill me. And then he says, my word finds no place in you. And then finally, he says, you are loyal to your father. And I'm convinced that some of the Pharisees had no idea what Jesus was talking about. You're loyal to your father. Some of the Pharisees might have thought, he thinks I'm loyal to my earthly father. Some of the more erudite Pharisees would have have thought, he thinks I'm loyal to Father Abraham. But Jesus didn't mean biological father or spiritual father or father who is Abraham. Rather, he tells us in John chapter 8, and we will get there next week, that you are of your father, the devil. That is who he is referring to. And so the Pharisees were confronted straight up in this episode by the Lord Jesus Christ. They understand now. They, they hear from the lips of Jesus their utter lostness. They learn that they are totally destitute of righteousness. They have no wisdom. They are destitute of strength and destitute of power. They are destitute of freedom. The only thing they do freely is commit sin. And so this morning, if you are a, a spiritual slave, if you've been traveling on that spiritual slave ship, here is the message You need to hear most. The spiritual slaves need freedom, which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This is what Luther rediscovered In the 16th century. This is what Luther referred to as an alien righteousness. You heard it right. An alien righteousness. Righteousness. That is, Luther learned that we must be delivered. We must be set free from the righteousness of another. That we need to receive the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the righteousness which he justifies through faith, as 1 Corinthians 1.30 states, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And so where will you turn to for freedom on this day? Where will you turn to for liberation on this day? To whom will you turn for freedom from the tyranny and the slavery of sin. The only answer is to trust in Jesus and his completed work on the cross for your sins. Now, for many of you, you are here and you are trusting Christ. Your faith is genuine in Christ. You have authentic faith in Christ. You have been set free from sin. You're free from the slavery of sin, free from the penalty of sin. Yet, some of you may find yourself still living like a slave. You can still hear the the clanking of chains. Will you turn with me to Romans chapter 6? As this point is vividly demonstrated. Romans chapter 6, and look with me, beginning in verse 17. Notice what Paul says. And we'll see something that I like to call the aha moment. Because we're going to learn here in a moment that we are actually all slaves. Verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin 
have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having become set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so you see, my friends, at the end of the day, Scripture makes it clear that we are all slaves. We are either slaves to sin on a fast track headed to hell, or we are slaves of God and slaves of righteousness who have been set free from the power of sin and been set free from the penalty of sin and one day will be free from sin's very presence. Believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, remember this, that spiritual freedom does not give us the license to do whatever we want to do. Spiritual freedom means this, Spiritual freedom means now we have the ability to do what God calls us to do. Now we have the freedom to obey God with a, with a full heart of worship. We have the ability to incline ourselves to God. We have the ability to make the right decision, the decision that honors the Lord. Fathers, now we're, we're free to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Fathers, we're free now to, to raise our children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Young people, we're free to, to be sterling examples of the gospel on our campuses now. We're free to show the world that obeying Jesus is the most important thing in the universe, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. May we live as free men and free women, and free boys and girls, all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we no longer be slaves to sin, but slaves to God and slaves to righteousness, and walk about in freedom because of His amazing grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You um, for yet another passage at a convicting passage, a challenging passage. I thank you that uh, you are sovereign over all these things. God, I pray for the people in this room. First, I pray for those who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would rest in your grace. I pray that they would never again hear the clanking of chains, that there's anything in their life that is uh, bringing uh, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ into question, that today would be a day where they turn from their sin that they would repent and that they would receive forgiveness and begin to walk afresh by the power of the Holy Spirit. For those who are traveling on a slave ship, God, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they too would never again hear the clanking of chains. Rather, they would, they would breathe in afresh the amazing grace of God. We entrust you on this day 
to, a, to do a good work, all for the glory of God. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen.